morning. If you could uh, open up the Word of God to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. We'll be starting in verse 30 this morning. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, that's Exodus 32, verse 30. And it says this. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now... If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin. Upon them. So the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our God, our Father, God, we come to this text again, Lord. We see Moses interceding for the people, Lord, and this points us to your Son. It points us to uh, the life that he lived, Lord, the sacrifice that he made. God, I pray this morning as we continue through the book of Exodus, Lord, as we continue to look at this story, this narrative of the golden calf, Lord, that we see your sun shine through, the the failure uh, of Aaron, Lord, in contrast with the leadership of Moses, Lord. And, And God, I pray that we see that you are the greater and better Moses. God, be with us this morning. God, help us to worship your, you and what you have done for us, Lord, in, in a more clear way, having a clear understanding of, of what it truly costs to forgive us our sins. God, I thank you for this passage. In your son's name, amen. You'll be seated. Today we'll be uh, uh, finishing up chapter 32 of Exodus. There's three points to the sermon this morning, and um, the three points are this: are these. Uh, Israel's need for atonement, Israel's need for a spotless lamb, and finally Israel's need for God. But before we jump into the sermon, I just kind of re- want to remind us the context, where we're at here in this uh, chapter. We saw last week that the author continues to connect this passage, Exodus 32, uh, to the garden, in particular, Genesis 3, the fall of man. Last week we saw that Aaron really was a type of Adam. He was a type of Adam. Aaron failed in a very similar way to Adam. And, and as I tried to point out last week, their failures, the stories, really parallel each other. And it's clear in Exodus 32 that just like Adam, Aaron is really the one that's blamed for the sin of the people. 
In our passage this morning, Moses really becomes the central figure. Uh, he becomes the, the person that, that really is uh, the main person of our passage. And I think that's on purpose. I think we're supposed to compare and contrast these two leaders, Aaron and Moses. Aaron as a type of Adam, and really Moses as a type of the second Adam, or Jesus. Once again, Moses' life, as we've seen over and over again, Moses' life is pointing us forward to Christ. Where Aaron fails as a leader, Moses succeeds. So there's three points in the sermon again this morning. Israel's need for atonement, Israel's need for a spotless lamb, and finally, Israel's need for God. So let's start with Israel's need for atonement. If you would, look at verse 30 again, Exodus 32, verse 30. It says this, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Again, there's a contrast here. Unlike Aaron, who made excuses, who who tried to minimize his sin, blaming the people, really getting as ridiculous as saying, I I threw this gold in the fire and out came this calf. Unlike Aaron, Moses does not minimize the sin of Israel. Verse 30, Moses said, you have sinned a great sin. Not just a sin, but a great sin. In in other words, it's very clear that Moses understands the gravity of the sin, the gravity of this situation. It was a great sin, and because of this, Moses' intercession on behalf of the people is not done. I want you to hear what James Boyce writes about Moses' response to Israel's sins. He, he, he says this, for, for, From a human point of view, Moses had dealt with the sin. The leaders were punished. Right? We saw this last week, 3,000 men dead. Aaron was rebuked. Moses confronted Aaron for the sin. The allegiance of the people was at least temporarily reclaimed. In other words, the, the people, the nation, was not out of control anymore. All seemed to be well. But God still waited in wrath upon the mountain. What was Moses to do? By that time, not all of the law had been given, but Moses had received enough of it to know something of the horror of sin and of the uncompromising nature of God's righteousness. Listen, because of the law, because of the law, Moses understood that God cannot just ignore sin. That God cannot just ignore sin. The law taught Israel, and it taught Moses, that God is righteous, that God is just, that God is holy, therefore he will not just ignore sin. And Moses really is starting to understand this. In fact, part of Exodus, if you just follow Exodus from the beginning to where we're at, which we we have, we're really seeing Moses grow in his understanding of God, his understanding of Yahweh. Right? He's, he's starting to understand the nature of God, what it means that, that God is Yahweh, what, what is God's character. Let me just kind of show you what I mean. Because later on in Moses' ministry, 
he writes something that I think is very uh, profound, and I think it's something he's grasping in this passage. In Leviticus 17, verse 11, he writes this. This is a command from God. God says this through Moses, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, for there to be atonement, for there to be atonement, there, there has to be death or blood. Now, the word atonement, I think, is an important word. It, it's a word that I, I think we may grasp, but maybe we don't fully understand. The, let me just kind of look at this word for a second here. If you look at the word atonement, it really has the root word one in the, the English word atonement. In fact, it literally means at one minute. At one minute, or to make one. In other words, sometimes atonement is needed to reconcile a relationship between two people, to make one, right, within a relationship. When it comes to our relationship with God, the shedding of blood, death, right, the death of a substitute, is needed. It's needed. And Moses is starting to understand this that God's holy, just wrath has to be satisfied. For reconciliation to happen. Therefore, Moses writes, and this again comes from God in Leviticus, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. In fact, the New Testament author of Hebrews picks up on this verse and and even states it more clearly. He writes this. This is Hebrews 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, in other words, without death, there is no forgiveness of sins. Listen. One of the greatest lies that Satan has ever told mankind is that God will just forgive your sins. Let me, just, let me just say that again. One, one of the greatest lies Satan has ever told mankind is that God will just forgive your sins. There are people heading to hell because they bought into this lie. That God will just forgive sins. That's not scriptural. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says this. Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. God won't just forgive sins. In fact, I'll take it a step further. God can't just forgive sins. It goes against his nature, and he will not not be God. Let me put it another way. Just think about this for a second. If God could just forgive sins, then Christ's death was pointless. Did you hear that? Why would God send his son to die if he could just forgive us? No. If there's anything in scripture that's absolutely clear, it's that Christ's death was not pointless. It was necessary. It was necessary because without the shedding of blood, 
there is no forgiveness of sins. Another way of saying this is, is this. Let me, let me just say it this way. God will not wink at sin. Or God will not just turn a blind eye to sin. Instead, God's holy wrath against sin will be satisfied. Sin will be punished. And that's extremely important to understand. It's important in these three chapters to understand. It's important in in our passage to understand this. It's it's important to to understand who God is and his character and his nature to understand this truth. Sin will be punished. In Exodus 32, verse 14, God said he wouldn't destroy Israel. After the first intercession with, with Moses, Moses praying on behalf of Israel, it says this, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken and bringing on his people. God told Moses, I'm not going to destroy them. I'm not going to destroy them, Moses. But, but Moses gets it at this point. He understands the character of God. That, that this doesn't mean the relationship between Israel and God was reconciled. This doesn't mean that, that God's holy wrath was satisfied. Moses understood that, that the mediation wasn't done, in other words. That, that the intercession, the prayer on behalf of Israel wasn't done. He understood that, that reconcil- reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sins only comes through atonement. In particularly, through the death of a substitute. Let me just ask a question, because I think it's important, again, we're, we're seeing Moses as he's growing up in his understanding of God. How does Moses know this? How does he know that, that, that there needs to be a substitute for the forgiveness of sins? You know how he knows? Through the law. The law has taught him this. I mean, think about it. At this point, Moses has seen animal after animal after animal sacrificed. In fact, for the rest of his life, as he's a part of the Israelites, he'll just see animal after animal after animal after animal after animal sacrificed, slaughtered. And this was done by the command of God. This was commanded in the law to do this. He, he, in other words, has seen the the visual explanation of atonement in in vivid imagery. I mean, just think about the Passover for a second, and let me me make it clear. The Passover, which it's instructions and its command to to, uh, observe the Passover is found in the law. Think of the Passover for a second. A, A spotless lamb was slaughtered for the sins of the family. In fact, the lamb took the place of the firstborn son. It was a substitute. The lamb's death, the, the blood of the lamb brought forgiveness of sins. That's why they would paint the blood on the doorpost as the death angel came. He passed over the household who did that. Moses is putting this all together. He understands pretty clearly at this point that there needs to be atonement. And without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin. So again, the first point this morning is the need, Israel's need for atonement. 
The second point is Israel's need for a spotless lamb. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. It says this. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. Again, he understands the gravity. And he's interceding for the Israelites. In fact, in these three chapters, Moses is going to intercede three times. This is the second time that he's interceding for the Israelites. And he says, they have made for themselves gods of gold, verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The book here is the the book of life, uh, the book that we see throughout Scripture, those that are saved, their names are written within this book. Now, there's some debate on what Moses is saying here. Some think Moses is saying, right, if, if you're going to destroy Israel, then destroy me too. Or, or something like this. If you're going to judge Israel, then judge me too. And it's kind of a straightforward reading of verse 32, but, but I don't think it really fits the context. I actually think Moses is saying something different. I think Moses is saying, destroy me instead of Israel. If you won't forgive their sins, which Moses at this point knows that God can't without atonement, then I will take their punishment. He's saying, I will be their substitute. Shed my blood. Blot me out of your book. In other words, Moses knows that that God cannot forgive Israel, right? Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There needed to be bloodshed. There needed to be a payment. So he says, I'll take their place. I'll be their substitute. Listen, this is the gospel. You want to see the gospel in the Old Testament? Right here. This is substitutionary atonement. Again, that's a fancy theological term, but it's pretty easy to understand. A substitute, atoning for sins. Moses is going to be that substitute to atone for the sins of the people. Israel's sins needed to be dealt with, and Moses was willing to deal with them by taking on their punishment, by being their substitute. And before we move on into our passage, I just, I just want to make a side note. This is true godly leadership. Husbands, fathers, this is our model. Aaron was a type of Adam. Instead of owning up to his sin as a leader, he blames shift, he blames the people he's leading. Moses is a type of Christ. He is willing to take on their punishment. He is willing to sacrifice everything, even his life, for the people he loved. And, and by the way, it was the people that rejected him. It was the people that said, as for this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. We, we don't want him as our leader anymore. Moses was a godly leader. He was a shepherd willing to sacrifice everything for the good of the people. And, and of course, this points us straight to Christ, right? 
I mean, Moses' life in this three chapters just continuously points us to Christ. Jesus went to the cross even though his disciples abandoned him. Peter denied him three times. Still, Christ was willing to go to the cross for the sins of his people. Again, Moses is a type of Christ. His, his life, when I say type of Christ, and I'm going to say this over and over again, his life, his life points to Christ. And, and again, we've seen this in Exodus. It, I've read this before in, in Psalms 106, verse 23. It tells us that Moses stood in the breach between God's wrath and the people. He stood in the breach between God's wrath and the people, just like Jesus stood in the breach between God's wrath and us. Moses is a type of Christ. And, and Exodus is just making this so clear, but, but this is extremely important in our passage this morning. Moses is a type of Christ, but he's not Christ. He's not Christ. And our passage, is, this is what our passage is teaching us this morning. Look at verse 33. This is God's answer to Moses' offer. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In other words, God rejects Moses' offer. He rejects Moses' offer. Moses, Moses, you can't take Israel's place. You can't be a substitute. Instead, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. They are responsible for their individual sins. Verse 33 becomes one of the clearest passages in Scripture, really in Exodus, that we need a better Moses. Listen, Israel, again, Moses is a type of Christ. Even a great leader, as, as we see in this passage, willing to sacrifice his own life for, for his people, but Moses isn't Christ. We need a better Moses. Israel needed a better Moses. Let me ask the question, because I think it's important. It's a question when you read this, it just jumps out at you. Why wouldn't God accept Moses' offer? be Israel's substitute. Because there's one thing Moses was missing, right? He, he's getting this understanding from the law. Right? He, he understands the need for atonement, that Israel needed a sacrifice, a substitute. Over and over again, he's seen this as lambs are sacrificed and animals are sacrificed. But what kind of lamb? Spotless lamb. Moses wasn't spotless. Moses was a sinner. And we see this in the book of Exodus, right? Earlier in Exodus, he murdered someone. He argued with God. And after, later on in the Pentateuch, he, he won't be allowed into the promised land because of his anger and careless actions. He was a sinner. He was human. He, was, he wasn't spotless. Therefore, Israel needed a better Moses, a sinless Moses. A spotless lamb, Israel needed Jesus. This is what First Peter 1, verse 18 says. It says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. 
Jesus was a spotless lamb without blemish. In other words, he was sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Moses was a sinner. Therefore, he couldn't take the place of the people. He had to answer for his own sins. He needed Christ to, to pay the price he couldn't pay. God tells Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Right? They will pay for their own sins. In other words, Israel needed a better Moses. Our passage makes that very clear. But then God says this in verse 34. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. In other words, I... I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to give the Israelites the promised land. But then he says this, Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. In other words, I'll I'll give you the promised land, but one day Israel will have to answer for their sins. And whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Listen, for, for Israel to survive that day, Right, the day of the Lord. They needed a better Moses, someone who, who, just like Moses, was willing to sacrifice his life, but unlike Moses, someone who is spotless. They needed Jesus, and our passage this morning, again, points us forward to Jesus, the truer and better Moses, the spotless lamb, the one who could truly take away the sins of the people. This brings me to my last point this morning, last point. Israel's need for atonement, Israel's need for a spotless lamb, and finally, Israel's need for God. Look at verse 35. Verse 35 says this, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Now this is the last verse in Exodus 32, and and. Really, it summarizes the entire chapter, all of Exodus 32. Israel made a calf. They sinned, yet it was a calf Aaron made. Again, he's the focal point of the sin. He's the one to blame because he was their leader. Instead of leading, he followed. So in verse 35, it just summarizes this entire chapter. But then it adds this. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people. Now, now why does God do this? It's an interesting verse. In fact, you read through Exodus chapter 32, and the first time I started studying, I'm like, why is this verse added here? Because God's already promised two things. One, he's not going to destroy Israel. Two, he's going to give them a promised land. But then at the very end, he says, I'm going to, he gives this plague on the the people, and and, and doesn't expand on it. In fact, there's all types of arguments on, on what this plague was. What type of plague, if it was something that already happened, something that was going to happen, if it was a disease, if it was the 40 years in the, the wilderness, and, and there's all types of disagreements. Why send a plague, and then why not expand on it in, the, in this portion of Scripture? Well, I don't think what type of plague is, is what's important. I actually think the word itself is what's important. It's an important word in the book of Exodus, isn't it? The word plague, God used ten plagues to free Israel and really to judge Egypt. 
The word plague points us back to the ten plagues in Egypt. Therefore, by using this word, I believe the author is being very intentional. He's being very intentional on what God's doing. Verse 35 is telling us that God is now treating Israel like Egypt. God is now treating Israel like Egypt. In other words, Israel worshipped a pagan god like the Egyptians. Now God is going to treat Israel like the Egyptians. He sends a plague on them. In other words, this last verse makes it clear that Israel's relationship with God is still very much in jeopardy. He is still, or he's starting to treat them, I should say. He's starting to treat them like like the other nations, like the Egyptians. Let me just kind of give you a foreshadow of where we're going to be going next week in in Exodus 33. God, God is going to tell Moses that he will take Israel to the promised land. He's going to tell Moses, hey, well, I'll get rid of all the people in the promised land. I'm going to take you there, give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you. I won't be there with you. In other words, he he tells Moses, he will give Israel all the blessings this earth has to offer. But he's not going to be with them. He's not going to live in their midst, in the tabernacle. Remember, this is the portion of scripture we're at, the the tabernacle being talked about, the instructions, and then it being built, and God living in the midst of the Israelites, dwelling with the Israelites. Well, well, this is at jeopardy. He he tells them, I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm not going to live with you. No tabernacle, no temple. He's not going to destroy them. They can have the promised land, but God will not be there. And to the credit of the Israelites... They finally get it. Because in Exodus 33, verse 4, this is how they respond. It says this, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. They mourned. In Exodus 33, Israel finally gets it. Their greatest need is not the promised land. Their greatest need is not food, which they've grumbled over. Their greatest need is not even water, which they have grumbled over. It's not freedom from slavery. Israel's greatest need is God. Their greatest treasure as a nation is God. What makes them special as a nation is God. And this truth really, the the greatest need of Israel, this truth really transcends both testaments. In fact, if you would, turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 1. We've gone to this chapter a lot in the book of Exodus because this is Jesus' prayer on behalf of his people. Jesus interceding for his people to the Father. This is, this is what Moses' life points to, and this is Jesus' prayer. This is an example of the type of prayer that, that, that he prays for us now. And so we've been in this chapter a lot, but I want to point something out. Again, starting in verse 1, it says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes uh, to heaven and said, Father, this is his prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God. You hear that? Eternal life is knowing God. The greatest gift, in other words, that God could ever give us is himself. The greatest gift that God could ever give us is himself. In fact, anything other than that, even good things, is worthless in comparison. Listen, I told you where we're going next week. Let me just tell you where we're going this summer. I am, hopefully, don't hold me to this, I'm hopefully going to wrap up the book of Exodus by the middle of June. I heard gasp. Because I think you're thinking seven chapters in a month and a half. And you're probably thinking after that, sure, Nathan. (laughs) But remember, let me just remind you, the last five chapters of Exodus are repetitive. Almost word for word the same as Exodus 24 through 31, which is the instructions of the tabernacle. Almost word for word. You get the instructions, and then the back half, they say they built tabernacle and it's almost word for word it's repetitive and that and that's because really most of the second half of exodus chapters 24 all the way through 40 is one massive chiasm that points us to the three chapters that we're in right now exodus 32 33 and 34 i've talked about this a number of times meaning meaning moses wrote all this about the tabernacle to share that the tabernacle is extremely important and these three chapters where we're at right now is saying it's all in jeopardy all in jeopardy. So the, this massive chiasm is pointing us to these three chapters. So what I'm planning on doing, and I don't want to just surprise you, but what I'm planning on doing is, I'm going to hopefully do this, one sermon on the last five chapters of Exodus. Because in reality, we already spent a ton of time on the, the same material. Uh, so, so that means I have a month and a half to cover two chapters, which I think I can do. The summer, after we're done with Exodus, we're going to spend some time in, in standalone sermons and sermon series. Um, but in the fall, we'll start a new book. That's the goal. Uh, right now, I'm thinking Philippians. I'm not 100% sure, so don't hold me to that. I, I want to take some time and pray about it and really discuss it with the elders and have them pray about it. But right now, I'm thinking Philippians, and my mind's been on that. And, and here's why I bring this all up. Exodus, an Old Testament book written thousands of years ago by Moses. Philippians, a New Testament book, written after the time of Jesus by Paul. I mean, if you want to get two diverse books or books that, that, that are on the far end of the spectrum when it comes to Scripture, Exodus and Philippians, yet both have the same exact message. Both have the same exact Message, which is our greatest need is God. Our greatest need is God. In fact, if you would, turn to Philippians 3, verse 4. We're going to end here today with this thought. Again, this is not Moses anymore. This is Paul. This is the New Testament. Paul is writing really kind of a a testimony of his. We're seeing the testimony of Moses in the book of Exodus. This is Paul's testimony in one sense. 
Starting in verse 4 again, Philippians 3, verse 4. For how unfamiliar Exodus is to many of us, this is probably a super familiar passage for most of us. Verse 4 says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You couldn't find fault in Paul. I've said this a number of times, mostly to high schoolers, but, but Paul was a rock star in his day. He had everything that the earth had to offer in, in his culture, in his day. He had respect, he had wealth, he had honor. And don't get me wrong, I don't, I don't think people loved the Pharisees, but every single person wanted to be one. He was educated. He was a rock star. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had before salvation, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In Exodus 33, Israel finally understands this truth. They finally start to grasp this truth. Even if, even if they're a great nation, right, even, even if they're given the promised land and, and all the blessings that come from that, if God is not there, if God is not living in their midst in the, in the tabernacle, it's all rubbish. Philippians or in Exodus 33, it's a disastrous word. It's the same message. Same message. Here's the lesson, and this is where we'll end today. Here's the lesson. This lesson's found in, in both Exodus and Philippians, and it's really just found in both the Old and New Testament. Everything in this life, even the good things, even the blessings, Everything in this life is rubbish. It's trash compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. That's the message. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Lord, I think that message is somewhat simple to understand, but so hard to live. God, you have blessed us so much as, as a people ourselves, Lord. You have blessed us so much in the lives that we've lived in earthly blessings. Lord, I know you've blessed me so much in, in a beautiful family and Yet, God, your word is so clear. It's worthless. It's worthless if I don't know you. For how much of a blessing all those things are, Lord, you are the greatest treasure. You are worth more than anything. Lord, and 
the only way to a relationship with you is through your son. You will not just forgive sins. You will not turn a blind eye to sin. Sin will be dealt with because you are just and holy and righteous. You will not compromise your character. Therefore, the only way we can get this treasure, which is you, is through the death of your son, Lord. Therefore, I pray for anyone who's listening that that doesn't have a saving faith relationship, Lord, that hasn't put their faith in, in your son and his death on the cross, Lord, that they would understand that everything in this life is worthless compared to relationship with you, but, but that relationship is only found through your son, that Moses' life points us to the better Moses, that is Jesus. Lord, I pray that they put their faith in him now. In his name we pray.